Finish the statement for me. No pain, no gain. That's right. You've, you've seen the shirt, right? You've read the posters. Maybe you've had a coach in your athletic career or a trainer trying to push your body to the limits. So when you protested about, no, I can't do another suicide sprint. I can't do another bench press. I can't do another burpee. They said, no, you got to push through. You got to push through the burn. You got to push through the pain. No pain, no gain. I wish the way to increase strength and endurance was by sitting on the couch and eating potato chips and watching Netflix, but that is not apparently how it works. Rather, we have to break down our muscles before they can be rebuilt stronger. The maxim often holds true in life, doesn't it? In our life experience that we don't often grow in wisdom and maturity until life first humbles us, until God first humbles us. In reality, this quippy phrase, no pain, no gain, isn't all that far off, is it, from the way that our God often works out His purpose in us. The longer you're a Christian, the more you'll come to realize is that, is that God often does His best teaching in the school of affliction. It's in that school that He gets our attention and shows us that we're, we're not actually as strong or as wise or as resourceful or as capable or as godly as we thought we were. The Apostle Peter expressed this idea through the analogy of a refiner's fire in which the dross of a metal is burned away so that our faith might endure and might be like gold on the last day, that they might shine on the last day. James, the Apostle James goes so far as to instruct believers to, to do what? To count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when you're tempted to bail out in the midst of the trial, James adds this, for good measure, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In a spiritual sense, no pain, no gain. For whatever reason, in God's wisdom, and likely because of our pride as humans in this fallen world, God's strange and beautiful design is to pour out His grace in our weakness. Often in our weakest and most vulnerable moments as humans. God's, God's answer to our prayers for relief and for rescue or for strength. His pattern isn't often to remove those troubles and fears immediately. To allow us to kind of, to use a football analogy, to run an end around the line. We, we can't run an end around God's purpose for us, but rather He asks us to go through them. In the moment, that's usually what we think we need. We think we need out. Get us out. But God's aim is that we might come to an end of ourselves and find Him to be our all. Friends, that's what we're going to see this, this morning. We're going to see it in motion in the book of Genesis and the story of one of the patriarchs of Israel. And we're going to see this in the life of Jacob. So turn to Genesis 32. It's on page 27 of the Bible underneath your chair. Just a note, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have this Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, take it home. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please use it. Uh, it's on page, again, page 27 of that Bible. 
If you're just joining us in Genesis, let me give you a quick flyby of the context that will help you understand where we are today. What we're, we're seeing in the book of Genesis, as the screen says, is the unfolding of God's promises to bring salvation to the human race. Despite the fact that humanity deserves God's curse because of our sin, God intends to bless the world and reverse all the horrific effects of sin and death. And He chooses to do that through a family, through a line of descent that started with Adam and Eve and then narrowed to a pagan man eventually from Mesopotamia named Abraham. And God established this special covenant relationship with Abraham and then with his son Isaac and then with Isaac's youngest son, Jacob. In God's sovereign freedom, remember, God chose the younger Jacob and not the older Esau to carry on the promise. And yet rather than trust in God and wait on him for his blessing, Jacob snatched away Esau's birthright and he conned his way into the father's blessing by masquerading as Esau. You remember that? And as a result, for the next 20 years, Jacob was exiled outside the land of Canaan, having fled there to escape Esau's anger, his murderous intent. And while outside the land, the Lord took Jacob, as we saw last week, in chapters 29 to 31, the Lord took Jacob through the school of hard knocks. His uncle Laban out Jacob. Jacob. He defrauded him multiple times. Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah, who, whom Jacob did not love, before eventually giving him Rachel in, in, in response to 14 years of servitude. This polygamy with, that Jacob committed with sisters and eventually with these sisters' servants caused all kinds of jealousy and conflict. And yet through it all, God was gracious. God gave Jacob 11 sons, eventually a 12th, but at this point 11 sons and one daughter. And he led him. He called him out of Padam Aram with untold riches. God had kept his promises to Jacob but now as Jacob stands on the edge of the promised land and he looks to his future, he knows that he has to deal with his past. Coming back to Canaan means re-entering the relationship with his family. And it means encountering his brother Esau. So let's read the first 21 verses of Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw, saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And so he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you, thus shall you say to, the Lord, to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and, and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and, and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. 
For, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed the night in the camp. Our text today is actually chapters 32 and 33 of Genesis. And I think that the structure of this unit of Scripture is pretty easy to trace. In chapter 32, verses 1 to 21 that we just read, we see God's reminder to Jacob of his promises to him at Bethel, and then Jacob's desperation for God to help him in the face of Esau's advancing army. In verse 30, 22 to 32 that we'll read here in a few minutes, we're going to see this, this famous wrestling match between Jacob and a mysterious man who attacks him. And then chapter 33 is Jacob's reunion and reconciliation with his brother Esau. Every week I give you a main idea of the text, which I hope will be the main idea of the sermon. It's a way to just make sure the agenda of God's Word sets our agenda this morning. Here's what I think the main idea is of the, these chapters is. God's answer to your greatest troubles and fears is often not to remove them, but to cause you to desperately cling to Him alone. God's answer to your greatest troubles and fears is often not to remove them, but to cause you to desperately cling to Him alone. Three points this morning, kind of mirroring that, mirroring that structure that I just said. Number one, the face of danger. It's in verses 1 to 21 that we just read. Number two, the face of God. Number three, the face of Esau. The face of danger, the face of God, the face of Esau. Brothers and sisters, I hope, I pray, I want that main idea that I just shared to sum up what I hope your response to God's word will be today. I pray that God would impress upon our hearts that our greatest need in our moments of crisis is not necessarily relief. Our greatest need is God. Our greatest need is an escape. Our greatest need is for God to get his work done in us. Let's look at point number one, the face of danger here at the beginning of chapter 32. Verse one indicates that after Laban and Jacob parted ways, the angels of God met him 
Now, I hope when we read that, another event earlier in Jacob's life popped into your mind. Did it? What event? That's right, the latter. What should have popped into your mind is when God met Jacob at Bethel. Remember his visionary dream when he saw the angels of God descending and descending on a stairway between heaven and earth. And we saw that the angels were a clear sign of God's providential protection and provision. And now, as Jacob is exiting the promised land, he sees the angels again. And immediately he seems to understand their significance. He says in verse 2, this is God's camp. He called the prior place that he had met God Bethel, God's house. But now he calls this place God's camp. He recognizes God's presence to be mobile, doesn't he? Aslan is on the move in the, in the language of Narnia. It speaks of a military encampment. Only here it's no regular army. It's not any Canaanite army, but the armies of the Lord of hosts. They're out in front of Jacob. They've gone before him. They're scouting the area. They're ready to defend him. Friends, I think that the, the, the presence of angels here as Jacob is exiting Padan Aram and coming back into the land, and both his, his entrance and his exit, his exit and his entrance, if you could say it in the right order, right? It suggests to us that the angels were there with him the entire time. It suggests that God never left him. As one commentator so aptly put it, although outside the land of promise, Jacob was not outside the hand of promise. But now the angel's visibility to Jacob reminds him of that fact. God is with him. And so verse 2 says that Jacob called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now, this word, this, this phrase, this name, two camps, has puzzled Bible scholars for a long time. Because it's not evident why Jacob calls the camp of God two camps, right? Some have suggested, well, perhaps J uh, Jacob is referring to the camp of angels and then to his camp, right? Two camps. But I'm not so sure that's it. And I'll show you in a few moments why as we keep going. But notice what Jacob does immediately after he sees the angels, after he names the place. Freshly invigorated by a renewed sense of God's presence, what does he do? He sends messengers before him to Esau, his brother. And I think that word choice by Moses is very intentional. He sends what? Messengers. It's the same word in Hebrew for angels. Angels are messengers of God that do His bidding. And so I think what Moses wants us to see is there's a connection between the sight of the angels and Jacob's immediate response. He seems to take fresh courage from the view of the angels and he initiates contact with Esau. You know, you, you might be thinking as you're reading, well, surely, you know, it seems obvious that Jacob's path back into the land must have taken him into the area of Esau's territory. He was going to cross his path naturally, but no, that's not the case. Seir is in the far south. Jacob was coming from the northeast. But Jacob knows that even though Esau was not in his immediate path, he now has to reckon with his past. It is time. And although God still has work to do with Jacob, as we're going to see, I think his action here in initiating contact with Esau is a response of faith to what he saw at Mahanaim. 
He acts upon his understanding of God's presence with him. And he seeks to deal with a 20-year-old offense. Jacob sends the messengers to Esau. And you're going to see, you're going to notice this. I'm not going to flag it every time. But anytime Jacob communicates with Esau in this entire passage, did you notice like the extreme deference that he dealt with him in? Verse 4, he calls him my Lord Esau. He says, thus says your servant, Jacob. And notice the goal in verse 5. I have sent to tell my Lord, there it is again, in order that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob is hoping beyond hope that Esau would not treat Jacob like he deserved. He is seeking Jacob's mercy. And I think all throughout this passage as Jacob defers to Esau, and even as he's going to come later, and he's going to bow down seven times. The irony is, is that the oracle was that the older would serve the younger. And here's Jacob bowing down before Esau, asking for his mercy. The messengers return with, with bad news. It's actually good news and bad news. It's kind of one of those situations. Hey, Jacob, the good news is that Esau is on the way, right? The bad news is that he's got 400 men with him. <laughs> Hope that's okay. Now, we're, we're never told Esau's intent. We're never told why he's coming with a, with a horde of men. But I think we can surmise that by the presence of the 400, that Esau is loaded for bear. From all appearances, he's coming to give Jacob what had been coming to Jacob for a long time. The wrath of Esau. Verse 7 says that Jacob was greatly afraid. He was distressed. Yeah, you think? He was terrified. This is Moses' way of saying, of saying that Jacob was freaking out. He was out of his mind with fear. The past that he thought he had outran finally had caught up with him. A 20-year-old sin was coming home to roost. Beloved, don't think that just because your sin doesn't have immediate consequences that it never will. Just ask Jacob. He thought he could bury the offense in the soil of a Padam Aram, but now Esau's army is headed toward him. Notice what Jacob does. He divides up his entourage into these two camps. And you can see his logic. It's right there in the text for us. If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. It just seems like common sense strategy. But notice the language. Jacob divides the group into what? Two camps. He divides it into Mahanaim. He had just named the place of the angels that. Two camps. It's almost as if his two camps echo the two camps that he had seen. I think what, what is happening here is that Jacob, when he saw God's camp, saw before him two camps of angels. I think that's what he saw. And now he's dividing his camp into two camps to echo what he had seen. He's trusting that each camp of angels would, would protect his two camps, each of his two camps. We can't be sure, but I think that's what's happening here. And then what does he do? Jacob does something in verse 9 that we have yet to see him do the entire story in Genesis. What does he do? He prays. In fact, this is the longest prayer recorded in Genesis. 
Jacob recognizes that ultimately his protection is not going to lie in his wily strategy, but in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about Jacob's prayer. First of all, notice that Jacob recognizes his unworthiness. He doesn't come to God with his hands full, but with his hands empty. This formerly self-assertive and manipulative man now recognizes that all of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him was undeserved. All God's covenant mercy to Jacob wasn't anything because of, uh, of what he had done, but based on God's free and full grace alone. It was none of Jacob and all of God. Friends, this is what Christian prayer looks like, isn't it? This is what the prayer of a believer looks like. We don't come to God asserting how lucky God is to have us on board, but rather we come to God noting how utterly undeserving we are of any of His goodness, especially His steadfast love and, and faithfulness to us in Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, this is kind of the starting point for Christianity. A recognition that in you is nothing worthy of God's attention and favor. That your sin has so corrupted your soul that even the good things that you do have no eternal value apart from Jesus Christ. So utterly holy is God that He cannot abide the presence of evil. Even the whitest lie has the blackest stain on your soul in light of God's holiness. Friends, the righteous deeds, the good works that we do apart from Christ are in God's sight utterly unworthy. They're worthless. They're like filthy rags. They don't merit you any standing before God. You are entirely dependent on God's love and faithfulness if you have any hope of salvation. So Jacob, Jacob's prayer is marked by this humility. It's a, it's a recognition of who God is. And then, of course, he asked God for deliverance. Did you see that? He transparently states his fear. He's honest. He's not hiding behind vague descriptions. He calls it what it is. He says, I'm afraid. And then notice verse 12. Jacob invokes the promises that God had made to him at Bethel years before. 20 years before, he invokes those promises. And he even uses the language of God's promise to Abraham in, back in chapter 22 about the offspring being multiplied like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. So not only is Jacob banking on God's character, his steadfast love and faithfulness in light of his unworthiness, he's banking on God's purpose to, to fulfill his word. Jacob is entrusting his present challenge, Esau, in light of God's past promises to him. I think I've told you this before, but the way that I used to break in a, a fresh baseball glove back in, in high school, did I tell you this before? Praise the Lord. Um, the way that I used to break in a new baseball mitt was to rub mink oil all over the leather, and then I'd put a ball in the web of the glove and a, a few rubber bands around the ball, and I'd close it tight. And then you know what I did? Any guesses? I put, not microwave, close. I put the glove in the oven. And I baked my mitt for several minutes. And the heat of the oven would melt the mink oil into the leather and it would soften it up. 
Friends, we're finally seeing Jacob begin to rub God's promises into the leather of his life. And it's finally coming out in his prayers. He finally seems to be being stripped of his self-sufficiency because his situation is so desperate. He has learned that holding on to God's promises at a distance is not biblical faith. Faith, from the Bible's perspective, isn't just knowing facts. It's not just knowing stuff. It's relying on the truth. It's acting on what you know. Jacob is rubbing these promises into the leather of his prayer life. He's calling upon God to honor his word and to fulfill his promise. And this is a wonderful model for our prayer life. Lord, you've promised never to leave me or forsake me, but I'm afraid. Oh, so Father, please be with me. Lord, you've promised to supply every need that I have according to your riches and and glory in Christ Jesus. I don't know how you're going to meet my need. I can't see the path, but I beg you to provide for us according to your promise. Oh, Father, Lord Jesus, you've promised to come again and make all things new. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Fulfill your promise. One of the best ways that we can honor God in our prayer life is by reminding him of his promises. God hasn't forgotten them. That's not why we remind him of them, right? But when we name his promises and we take them back to him, it reminds us of his promises and it demonstrates our reliance upon him and him alone to keep his word. And But that gives him glory. That gives him honor to fulfill his word. Well, after Jacob prays, he goes back to planning. He planned, he prayed, he planned, and then he's going to pray again in verses 22 to 32. Now, some commentators, as I read this week, see Jacob's strategy here as a lack of faith, as exhibiting the self-sufficiency, and maybe it does, right? I mean... It does seem like Jacob is trying to appease Esau's wrath like a, like a pagan tries to appease his God. He's trying to placate Esau by what he's offering him. And so he, he sends out these staggered parties, wave after wave after wave of animals. I don't know if you were counting and tallying them up as we were reading, 550 animals total. It's designed to wear down Esau's hatred and to soften him. It's almost a comical amount of animals, isn't it? There's archaeological evidence from the ancient Near East of a king giving another king livestock as part of a treaty. It was a fraction of what Jacob now offers Esau. This is a king's ransom of livestock that he has given him. You can see the point of this all down in verse 20. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Literally, the Hebrew is, perhaps I may appease his face, and then perhaps he will lift my face. But what Jacob needs to understand is that ultimately, friends, it's not Esau's face that he should care about supremely. It's not what Esau thinks of him ultimately that's going to matter at the end of the day. It's the face of God that matters most. It's Jacob's relationship with the Lord that needs to be at the forefront of his mind. And that's what we're going to see here in the next few verses. Verse 21, so the, so the present, the gift, passed on ahead of him. And Jacob stayed that night in the camp. Now this sets the stage for the primary drama 
of the story. Let's read verses 22 to 32. The same night, he arose and took his wives and his two children. Excuse me, and his two, not, he has more than two children, doesn't he? That same night he arose and took his, his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. We're not told exactly why Jacob sent his wife and children ahead of him and he stayed back. You know, it could have been cowardice. I don't think that's it. It could have been... Maybe he's reasoning that by isolating himself, he'll draw Esau's attention, his ire toward himself and not his family. Maybe he counted his family as kind of the last wave of the wave of gifts, so to speak. But what really matters is what happened next. The German reformer Martin Luther calls these verses one of the most obscure passages in the Bible. What an encouragement that was to me as I studied. Let that be an encouragement to you. Verse 24 is as abrupt as it is shocking. Out of nowhere, the Bible says a man attacked Jacob in the dark. Who's the man? Is it, is it Esau launching a stealth attack? Is it a bandit? Is it a robber? That would make sense. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And Jacob wrestled back with all his might. In fact, these, these men wrestled all the way to the dawn. Just a remarkable endurance by the man and by Jacob. Verse 25 seems to, seems to indicate that this man, even as they wrestled on, had intentionally limited his might. He had intentionally limited his strength in the fight. He had this hidden reservoir of strength because what does he do? When he saw that he wasn't pre prevailing, what does the man do? He merely touches Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. This man injures Jacob. He incapacitated Jacob's ability to fight effectively, and yet still, Jacob tenaciously holds on. In verse 26, the man says, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And here's our first clue, really the second clue. The first clue is the, the touch of the hip and the dislocation. The second clue that Jacob understood that this is no ordinary man. This was one who could bless him. This was God. The prophet Hosea comments on the passage, if we ever have a question about a biblical interpretation, what do we do? We let scripture 
interpret Scripture. It's a main priority of biblical interpretation. Hosea chapter 12, listen to verses 3 and 4. We read it last week. In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So Hosea helps us identify who this man is. He concurs with Jacob. This is God. This is God having taken on human form to condescend to Jacob. Hosea calls this man the angel. Now remember, we, we have seen the angel of the Lord before in Genesis. We've seen this stand-in manifestation of Yahweh before. Back in the story with Hagar, when the three men approached Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not the angels, plural. Not the messengers of God, plural. But the angel of the Lord. At select times in, in the early dealings of his people, God took the form of a human in order to deal with them directly. And because of passages like we read earlier from Exodus that Anthony read, where it says, where Moses says, no one can see the face of God and live. Many, many theologians think that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christophany. And it very well may be. Regardless, it's clear that this man with whom Jacob wrestled is God himself. God sought to humble Jacob by injuring him. God was stripping Jacob's self-sufficiency and pride. He's bending Jacob's will toward his. He's showing Jacob, you are no match for me. Your greatest need, Jacob, isn't Esau's favor. It's my favor. Jacob's greatest need wasn't that Esau's face be turned toward him, but that God's face be turned toward him. And then when we see the, the injured Jacob hanging on to God for dear life and the crying out to God for his blessing, friends, that's a really good sign. That's a sign that Jacob finally understood what he needed. He needed God. He needed what God had promised him all along. He needed the blessing. Notice the question to Jacob in verse 27. What is your name? And he said, Jacob. It's almost an admission of guilt, isn't it? I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. This is the way I've been for most of my life. And the man said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This man had the authority to change Jacob's identity. No longer is Jacob going to be known for his past and his past sin, but for his future. The name reorients Jacob's identity from striving in his own strength to striving for God's blessing. The wording is strange. I, I have to admit that a man, that Jacob, can be said to have prevailed with God. Because clearly, who won the match? Physically. Who won the match? God won the match. Jacob's going to limp away with the permanent reminder of his physical weakness. No, the, the way that Jacob prevailed wasn't by winning the wrestling match physically. The way that he prevailed was by his tenacious clinging to the Lord and then his declaration of dependence upon him. And Jacob's limp for the rest of his life is going to remind him that God's strength is known through his weakness. This is the upside-down world of the kingdom of God. We saw it all through the Beatitudes when we studied Matthew last year. 
It's not the strong. It's not the self-sufficient that lay claim to the kingdom, but the poor in spirit and those who mourn. It's not the self-assertive that God honors, but the meek. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in so in due time he might exalt you. Brothers and sisters, you can go far in this world by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, by your charisma and your intellect and the force of your personality, but you cannot go far that way in God's kingdom. In fact, you can't enter the kingdom in your own power. Friends, the wealth that buys you access to the kingdom of God is spiritual bankruptcy. God's chosen currency for access to him is humility. When you, like Jacob, realize that you've met the one who has limitless power and you cry out in desperation for his help and for his blessing. Friends, if we know anything about our God, it's that he will often do what is necessary to humble us. I've seen it in my life. I'm sure you've seen it in yours. Either we're going to cultivate a lowliness of mind or God will bring us low. Why? Why does God choose to discipline us in this way? Because he's the heavenly ogre who gets his jollies from beaning you with his heavenly club into submission? No, because he, he knows that in order for you to be full of joy both now and eternally, I'm talking true and lasting satisfaction, true joy. In order for you to have that, you need to be full of God, not full of yourself. I'm convinced that one of the primary evidences of the curse is wallpaper. I would rather go to the dentist or the orthodontist or whatever, wherever you go to get a root canal, it's the dentist, right? I'd rather go to the dentist and get a root canal than peel wallpaper. So two houses prior to the one we live in, we had to peel wallpaper in both places. And of course, you can go to the Home Depot and you can get that, you know, that peeler device, you know, where you, what it was, I don't even know what it's called, but you put it in and you start turning it and it helps peel the wallpaper. I mean, I remember a couple of times that we, we worked for hours and it just was not working. And then you go to the Home Depot or wherever and you can get the, the wallpaper stripping agent, right? And you, it's like this gel that you put on the wallpaper. And what does that gel do? What does that solution do? It softens it. So finally, layer after layer, the wallpaper peels off. Maybe a silly illustration. But I, th I thought of the way that God often works in us. Our hearts are often hard. We're often stubborn in our pride and our self-sufficiency. And so the Lord uses our circumstances that he sends our way to soften us, to bend us, to strip from us our self-sufficiency and pride so that we might find our all in him. Many see this event as Jacob's conversion to be a true believer and a follower of the Lord. Maybe. You wouldn't have to work hard to persuade me of that. Okay? Because God radically transformed him and then he renamed him. He gave him a new identity. But I think there are other clues that indicate that his focus was already Godward. I even mentioned them earlier in the service, in the sermon. 
But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if you believe, hey, God's dealing with Jacob now as a believer or as an unbeliever. It really doesn't matter. Because whether this was Jacob's day of salvation or a step of discipline and sanctification along his journey, the point remains the same. God often breaks us down so that he might build us up. He shows us the path to him as the road of humility. That to acknowledge our weakness is to know his strength. What we need isn't the alleviation of our circumstances. What we need is a relationship with God. So friend, what are you seeking in your moment of need? To what or whom do you turn? Teens, this isn't just for adults. This is for you. Older kids, this is for you. At the end of the day, what you need is not popularity or stuff or even friends. What you need as a young person above all is God. You know, this last year, parents, we know this for our children, school-age children. This last year was rough on our kids. They're away from school. They're away from friends a lot of the time. It was isolating. It was discouraging often. Teens, I got to ask you, to whom did you turn during COVID? Where was your joy and your happiness found? Did you find yourself seeking God and fostering a contentment in Him? Or did your joy rise and fall with your circumstances? Maybe God wants to use a time like that that was hard for everyone and hard for you as a moment like Jacob so that you realize your severe limitations. Your strength is severely limited, but God's strength is limitless. That God is after your heart. He doesn't want just some of you alongside all your hobbies and pursuits. He wants all of you. So stop fighting Him. Stop kicking against Him. Stop struggling and submit your heart to Him and follow Jesus. Look at verse 29. Jacob asks the man for his name and the man declines to tell him. Instead, he blesses him in order to remove all doubt who he is. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means face of God. Jacob had a personal encounter with God, and through that blessing, his life was preserved. I think there's a connection there, a verbal connection earlier did you notice Jacob's prayer? He was terrified and he begged God, deliver me please, deliver me from the hand of my brother. Now Jacob uses the same verb, my life has been delivered. Not because it was delivered from Esau, because he had seen God face to face. His life was delivered. Now he's in position to face Esau properly. No longer afraid, but confident in his God. I wonder if there may be some of you, you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, okay, I'm following you. I see Jacob with the angels. Jacob had this personal, intimate encounter with God. Well, if God would make himself real to me like that, then I would trust him. If I saw camps of angels, then I'd believe. If God wrestled me, jumped off the top rope, and tried to pin me down, well, then I'd acknowledge, yeah, there's a God. And I get it, these visceral experiences that we're reading about, we yearn for something like that ourselves. But friend, what you need to understand is that, is that, is that God's coming to Jacob 
anticipated, didn't it, his coming to us. Jacob saw the face of the Lord dimly in the dark of night. We see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God's glory displayed in Jesus and through his word. Jacob asked for God's name. If you're Christ, you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God. In other words, the fullest revelation of God that he could ever give to us, he has already done in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus. We do not need any other experience to behold him and to be changed by him than to see him in this word. And friends, so if you'll come to Jesus by faith today, if you'll rest in his work alone to save you, if you'll trade in your sufficiency for his sufficiency, you can be sure that the God of Jacob, through his son, through the power of his spirit, will be with you, will bless you. Just briefly, just as some passing comments, we're not going to look at this chapter in detail. Number three, the face of Esau. You can read it in detail this afternoon. It would be very edifying for you to do so. But in chapter 33, the Lord restores what was broken. He answered Jacob's prayer. Esau, in verse 4, runs to Jacob. But instead of running for vengeance, he ran in for a hug and a kiss. God had transformed Jacob and he had changed Esau. Notice verse 9. Esau attempts to refuse these, these lavish gifts. And then look at Jacob's response in verse 10. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I don't, I don't think Jacob's saying that, that Esau is some sort of substitute for God, but rather there's a tie between Peniel from the face of God and what he's seeing now, the face of Esau. Jacob is saying that Esau's acceptance of him reflects God's acceptance of him. The forgiveness that Esau now extends to Jacob reflects the forgiveness that God extended to Jacob at Peniel. In a sense, Jacob's transformation from deceiver to Israel would not be complete unless it included reconciliation for the wrong that he had done to Esau. And so just as we close, let me remind you that your vertical relationship with God always has horizontal implications. For some of us, the, the primary evidence that the gospel has changed our lives will be the forgiveness that we offer to others for wrongs that have been done to us. Or the forgiveness that we seek from others for wrongs that we have done to them. The gospel of Jesus doesn't let us stay neutral when it comes to our relationships. The forgiveness that God grants us in Christ compels us, doesn't it, to share that same love and forgiveness with others. Reconciliation with God and men are tied together. Finally, Jacob and Esau part ways. Esau returns to Seir, while Jacob journeyed to Succoth and then eventually to Shechem, where he bought a piece of land. And there erected an altar, as his grandfather Abraham had done in that same place long before. And he called the altar El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder from your word today.
that what you're after ultimately isn't necessarily to make our lives better, but to make us your own. What you're after in our life isn't to give us necessarily everything that we want even, but to give us what we need, to give us yourself. And so, Father, I pray that if anyone's here today and they've never bowed the knee, they've never submitted their heart to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to, to today that they would see the glory of the gospel and their need of a Savior, and that they would trust in Christ fully for their salvation. And for those of us who are Christians, Father, help us to see the normal, everyday experiences of our life, the good things that you give us, the hard things that you send our way as evidence of your love for us, that you are that you are pursuing us and staying with us and staying after us. You started it at conversion, but you're continuing the good work that you, that you began. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts might bend toward yours like Jacob's did at Peniel. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us so powerfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be known as your people. We want to be known as people of faith and people of the promise. We ask that it would evidently be so in our life together here at Redeeming Grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.